A wail of sirens cuts through the tepid night air, which blankets the tangled marshland. And from within that web of trees and vines, the hazy eyes of a shadowy, once-human creature peer out, dully watching, barely comprehending, as the stage is set for a drama of hatred and death. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide through the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. On today's program, I'll be discussing Adventure into Fear number 12, an issue that deals primarily with race and stereotypes and the ambiguity of violence in 1970s America. And as an added bonus, you'll get to hear me, a middle-aged white man living in the suburbs, talk about the black experience of the 1970s. You know, so that won't be too awkward or anything. But before I begin, I want to apologize. This is going up a little late, again, because, well, basically I suck at deadlines. Actually, that's not true. I only suck at my own deadlines. When I work for others, I can hit theirs just fine. Other people's deadlines, I am spot on. Or, to put it another way, I'm down with OPD. Yeah, you know me. See, it's only when I set a deadline for myself that I tend to breeze by it with nary a glance as I pass. I'm sure it's a psychological dysfunction that could probably be the basis of an academic paper of some sort. In my defense, however, the area where I record has been surrounded by a god-awful amount of construction, where I have been inundated with a constant banging and clanging and grinding and pounding, 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 oh my god, the pounding. Uh, so I've not been able to sufficiently drown that out, and I figured a week late was better than horrible sound quality, so I have a valid excuse is what I'm saying. All that aside, uh, I want to welcome new listeners. Welcome! Uh, the new listeners coming to my show is a direct result of Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Network, specifically the Quarter Bin podcast, where he played my trailer. Uh, so I've seen my downloads increase quite a bit. So uh, thank you, Professor Allen. You are a gentleman and a scholar, and I am forever in your debt. Of course, I can't forget my old listeners, you know, the ones previous to the trailer being played, so I'd like to give them a shout-out. Hey, Dave. What's up? How's it going, buddy? But seriously, welcome to all the newbies. Uh, thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the show. Also, I got some likes on Facebook and Twitter, and even a few retweets for the last episode, so I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, but also, I'd really love to hear your feedback on the individual episodes. So if you get a moment, jot something down and send it to nexus at daddyelk.com. Uh, daddyelk.com, by the way, for the benefit of the new listeners, is a blog that I write with essays and reviews and short stories and, and other things as well. And if you'd like to know the reason why it's called daddyelk.com, you can check out another podcast that I do called The Elkcast, where I tell you that story in the very first episode, and you'll learn why that name came to be. Uh, it's very sweet. You should check it out. <laughs> okay, enough self-promotion. Uh, so I'll move on to the actual episode, but seriously, send me an email to nexus at daddyelk.com. Now, before I get into the issue, I want to mention something... Uh, it's not really news. It's more, I guess, wishful thinking on my part. But I think we're getting closer to seeing Man-Thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, insert 
inappropriate penis joke here. This week, uh, the week I'm recording this, we got trailers for Iron Fist and Doctor Strange. These two properties, of course, introduce the mystical into the MCU, and along with what's happening on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with Ghost Rider and whatnot, we are getting more and more magic on screen. Thor Ragnarok also looks like it'll have some more mystical stuff as well, so I'm thinking, since we are getting all this magic, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that there might be a visit to a centralized area where magic coalesces. A nexus, if you will. And of course, that nexus has a guardian. It could happen, is what I'm saying. I'm hoping to see Man-Thing very soon. Again, insert inappropriate penis joke here. <laughs> Alright. I'm actually going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a trailer, probably for Professor Allen, and when I come back, we'll talk about racism through the eyes of a swamp monster. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. February 1973. It's a time of transition and change. Attitudes and perceptions about gender and race are evolving, but very, very slowly. The 1970s in general, and the early 70s in particular, are a very strange time. Progressive and backwards, all at once. The civil rights movement in the 1960s was a tremendous achievement, but the advances achieved did not come easy. It was opposed every step of the way, and more often than not, violently so. And that violent opposition never really went away. It just sort of melted into the background, into a seething, awful anger that popped up every now and again in the form of offensive language, dismissive behavior, and sometimes physical altercations. I grew up in Philadelphia in the 1970s, and Philly at that time was a very segregated city. Uh, no one called it that, of course. No one came right out and said the word segregation, but it was there, and it was obvious. I mean... The neighborhood I grew up in was white, working-class Irish Catholics. And right down the street was the Italian neighborhood, and a couple blocks in the other direction was the black neighborhood. Everyone had their defined borders. God forbid someone tried to move out of that predefined area. And no one questioned this. I mean, I was a little kid, and I didn't know any better. I never thought about how screwed up that was. But I, as I say, things were changing. And the way black people were presented in film and TV, and yes, comic books, was changing. Uh, gone was the shuffling servant. Instead, that was replaced by the strong, powerful black man. I mean, this was the start of the black exploitation films and that ideal, uh, the, the funky, Afro, jive-talking, streetwise, urban badass. 
I mean, this is still a stereotype, but uh, a better one, I guess. Uh, hell, as a kid, I loved that look. Uh, I thought it was cool as shit. I wanted an afro. I wanted to be Link on the Mod Squad. I mean, it was solid, Jack. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous and probably offensive in many ways. But it was a change in attitude in white America, at least in the younger generation. And comics were a big part of that for me and I think for a whole bunch of kids of that era. My brother, who's older than me, his favorite character was Luke Cage. And of course, I read everything he did because that's what little brothers do. So in turn, I read a lot of Power Man as well. And uh, my favorite character was Captain America. And so Falcon became a favorite of mine as well. Now, these were characters that were presented as heroes, just heroes. And while the fact that they were black was part of their personality and culture, they were not defined by it. It was just the Falcon, not the Black Falcon. And it was Power Man, not Black Power Man. Although, now that I say that out loud, Black Power Man probably would have been a very interesting read. Of course, this wasn't a complete turnaround. You, you'd never see a black man lead the team, for instance. He'd always be the sidekick, and usually the muscle. Worse still, more often than you'd think possible, the black person would be a criminal or a drug dealer or just out of prison, even if they were presented as likable or redeeming or reformed. Think Huggy Bear from uh, Starsky and Hutch or wrongly accused like Luke Cage. They'd still be presented as being from the lower end of society. Perceptions were different, but it wasn't perfect by a long shot. Now, let me be clear. I am under no illusions here. No matter how much I empathize or respect the black experience, I will never understand what it was like to be black in America. I know that my experience growing up was vastly different than what someone who grew up just a few blocks down the road from me was. The only thing I can speak to is my experience and my perceptions and how these things affected me. You see, to my parents' generation, especially my grandparents' generation, black people were to be afraid of, to be looked down upon. And to me, and those I knew, black people were strong and tough and proud. Again, this is still a stereotype, but inching towards a better understanding that we're all just the same, that the differences between us are societal and something that we can change if we just put aside prejudices and see each other as people, not color. I'm not fooling myself. There is still racism in this country, systemic in places. You need only look at the candidacy of Donald Trump to see that. But when I look at my daughter's generation and I see her attitude towards race and her disbelief at the injustice and the inequality surrounding race issues, I know things can get better. I know things will get better, even if it's happening at an incredibly slow pace. Okay, so what does this have to do with a Swamp Monster comic from the 1970s? Well, that's why I love this comic. Yes, it's a horror comic about a Swamp Monster, but it was never afraid to tackle some pretty controversial issues. In this particular case, race. How well does it handle that issue? Well, we'll find out. Adventure into Fear number 12, cover dated February 1973. Stanley presents Man-Thing, No Choice of Colors. Steve Gerber script, Jim Starlin pencils, Rich Buckler inks, John Costanza letterer, Roy Thomas editor, cover by Jim Starlin and Frank Giacoya. The cover depicts a black man, his arm in a sling, in the coils of a giant snake. Man-Thing attempts to untangle the man from the snake. Behind them, a policeman points a shotgun towards them. 
Go to it, ugly, he yells. Then after you've rescued that lousy escaped Kong, I'm gonna blast you both. Why he would wait until after he's been rescued to shoot them is a bit of a mystery, but let's move on. In the swamp, man thinks he's a patrol car chasing a fleeing vehicle. Reaching the end of the road, a black man, Mark Jackson, leaps from the car and attempts to escape on foot through the swamp. A white cop, Wallace Corley, exits the patrol car and fires his revolver at Jackson, hitting him in the shoulder. Jackson falls into the murky water and swims away. Corley attempts to track him. Man-Thing, meanwhile, feeling the hatred coming from the police officer, sets off to find the injured man. Man-Thing does find him and bandages Jackson's injured arm, because in addition to being an empathic swamp creature, he apparently knows first aid. Weak but thankful, Jackson decides to tell the monster his story. He grew up poor in the tiny town of Topequa. Throughout his life, the town made sure his family remained poor by not allowing his father to find a job, and his mother could only find work as a maid. As an adult, Jackson had a relationship with a white girl, a girl Corley just happens to have eyes for, and so he sent his deputy to falsely accuse him of robbery and bring him in. Jackson escaped the deputy, then fled into the swamp, chased by Corley. After hearing his story, Man-Thing leads Jackson deeper into the swamp, where they are attacked by a giant snake, because that's what giant snakes do. Man-Thing kills it. Suddenly, Corley finds them, accusing Jackson of murder. Man-Thing, for some reason, is appalled by the idea of murder. This seems a bit odd, coming from a monster that murders rather often. But let's not dwell on that. Corley then tells the story, in a not very PC way, about how Jackson stabbed and killed the deputy in order to escape. Jackson admits this, but says it was only in self-defense. Corley disagrees, again, in a very racist way. Man-Thing, feeling disgusted by the hatred emanating from both men, turns and walks away. As soon as he does, Corley shoots Jackson, killing him on the spot. Corley then begins to gloat over the dead man. This angers Man-Thing, and feeling the need for animal justice, he approaches the terrified Corley, grabs him, and burns him to death. So much for being appalled by murder. With the ugly passions of the two men now put violently to rest, Man-Thing walks off into the lonely swamp. So, that was a nice little story. Where to begin with this one? Okay, let me start with what I believe Gerber was trying to get across here. He is, first and foremost, trying to say racism is bad. That's pretty obvious. But in addition to that, he's also trying to convey that violence in response to hatred is equally as bad. It's a two-way street, in other words. Hatred begets hatred, violence begets violence. And in the end, nothing will come of it except tragedy and death. This in and of itself is a fine message. There are, however, problems with the details in the story being told. First off, in order for there to be two sides of a story, both people must at least be slightly sympathetic. Corley isn't even remotely likable. He is obviously set up to be the villain uh, in action, in look, and in language. Uh, here's just a taste of the couple of things that Corley says. First of all, when he's tracking Jackson and Man-Thing, I'm gonna get that boy, I swear I am, which is not uh, endearing in any way. And then when telling the story of Jackson's attack on the deputy, he says, that's when the jungle instinct in you boys showed itself. Yeah. And finally, when arguing with Jackson, he says, your kind was never too long on brains. There... 
We are given no reason to like this guy. No reason to have sympathy for his opinions. No reason to believe the things he says, because he's pretty much a despicable human. And on the other side, we have a bit of a false equivalency. Gerber tries to paint the actions of Jackson as being equally as terrible as that of Corley. But if Jackson's story is to believe, and there is nothing in the text to say that we shouldn't, Jackson's entire life was one of oppression. An entire town actively and systematically strived to keep his family poor, and, it is said, in their place. Going so far as to tell them, uh, keep your head down, don't do any marching, in other words, don't get uppity and don't expect rights or anything. So when the incident with the deputy happens, this is actually the culmination of an entire life of abuse. So when Jackson kills the deputy, this is not some random act of violence, but a man trying to defend himself. Now, Gerber does try to depict the killing of the deputy as particularly brutal, as to lend some credence to Corley's side of the story, to muddy the waters, but again, this is a frame job. And although the deputy says he wants to bring him in, it is heavily implied that Jackson won't be treated well. His life is most definitely in danger. So again, he, when he lashes out, it is to defend himself. In the context of the final showdown, we are to think of Jackson and Corley as essentially the same, as two sides of the same coin, but the oppressed fighting back is not the same as oppression. This is, this is the false equivalence. It fails to take into consideration the nuance of a lifetime of persecution. This confrontation in the swamp is supposed to be a microcosm of race relations, one incident symbolically representing a vast and complicated issue. And when Man-Thing turns his back and walks away in disgust, it's meant to be a surrogate for us, the reader. This hatred and violence has been going on so long it needs to be disregarded, as the pathetic folly it is, ignored, put behind us. But the thing is, when we look away, when we lose focus, the hatred just continues. The violence just resumes. And pain is the result. People die. Gerber tries to resolve this with a cathartic revenge scene. But ultimately, this is unsatisfying. Gerber brings up some serious issues here, and he seems to be saying we can't just turn our backs on it, because if we do, terrible things can happen. But at the same time, in trying to make this point, he reduced a complicated situation to a simplistic, sorry to use the term, black and white issue. This gets to what I was trying to say before, that at this time in the early 70s, so much was trying to be said in a modern, progressive, inclusive way, but it wasn't always expressed in the most eloquent terms. So while I applaud Gerber's intention here, this is, after all, a comic book about a swamp monster. So even attempting to address racial issues in this genre is pretty astounding. His execution, however, is clumsy. The message is muddled. And like many things at this particular time, the story seems to know where it wants to end up. It just has no idea what direction to take to get there. I'll talk more about it right after this. Hello, everyone. My name is Paul Matthew Carr, also known as Daddy Elk to my internet friends, and I like to make stuff up and write it down. 
Occasionally, I'll take those written down stories and read them aloud into a microphone to record them for others to listen to later. These bits of audio are collected into a neat little program called the ElkCast, and it's guaranteed to make you smile. Unless it doesn't, because life is a rich tapestry of sadness and euphoria peppered throughout a fragile existence, and no one person can really guarantee happiness in a complex, ever-changing, and diverse world. But I can tell you this, if you listen to the show, you'll not only get the aforementioned story, but also the story behind the story, anecdotes, and inspiration. And if you're not careful, you just might learn something. Spoilers, you won't learn anything. But you might be entertained, so why not give it a shot? Listen to the Elkcast, a storytelling podcast with me, Paul Matthew Carr. You can find it on multiple listening venues like iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And online at daddyelk.com. You won't be disappointed. Unless you are, you know... Because of the whole tapestry thing. I probably could have sold that better. All right. We are coming to the close of yet another episode. And this was a heavy one. Uh, You know, it's not the topic you expect to be talking about when you're dealing with a 70s swamp monster. But that's what's really great about this comic. The open-ended nature of the premise really allowed Gerber and the artists to experiment, to try new things. No subjects were off limits. And Gerber's... um, Unique perspective and his style allowed for an interesting take on those subjects. And this issue shows that he didn't always hit the mark perfectly. He was still very rough around the edges in many places. But the fact that these kind of stories were attempted says volumes about how writers and artists were approaching comics at this time. So I'll be back hopefully very soon where we'll be talking once again about demon possession and pseudo-satanic-like cults, and one of your better character names, Thog. That's right, weirdness will ensue in the next episode in Adventure into Fear number 13, When Worlds Collide. So that just leaves me to say, you've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. You can contact the show via email, nexus at daddyelk.com, or online at nexusofallrealities.com, or daddyelk.com slash nexus, and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also contact the show on the Twitter, at Nexus of All. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over, please leave a review. I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? That's it. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye.